Welcome to Adapt Peace Building. Welcome to the Adapt Peace Building podcast, where we explore the best ideas and practices for building peace and supporting social cohesion in our sometimes violent and messy world. I'm your host, Stephen Gray, and today I'm talking to Mia Rosedale, Director of the Conducive Space for Peace, about the recent publication, A Global System in Flux, Pursuing Systems Change for Locally-Led Peacebuilding. Welcome, Mia. Thank you very much, Stephen. Thanks a lot for inviting me. You're very welcome. So very soon we're going to be digging into this topic of systems change in the international peacebuilding system. Uh, before we get there, Mia, it would be lovely to hear a bit about what brought you into this work and what is the role of Conducive Spaces for Peace. Yeah, my my own story very specifically brought me into to this space, and which I today consider my vocation of trying to serve as a change agent for systems change that can enable locally led peace building. I've been served in many different positions in the both peace building and human rights and development field. And in some of those positions, I've worked within international organizations. I've been in positions of power to make decisions about how peace building could be supported, could be funded, could be promoted by donors or international organizations especially experiences when working in Nepal 10 years ago, where I could have spent all my time just engaging with other donor representatives, having you know meetings and coffees and important talks and important decisions in Kathmandu, but very little conversation that we gave a space for sincere listening to local peace builders and understanding their needs, understanding their ideas, their innovative ways of moving forward, their interpretation of how to uh, move forward when opportunities would come up. And I mean, conflict-affected contacts are dynamically shifting at all times. And how are you on earth going to expect internationals who come in for maybe two years at a time to understand anything sensible that is anywhere comparable to the understanding held by local peace builders? So I think that was the start of a, a process that I think I've been in since I entered the field of feeling actually uncomfortable with a system that to some degree overrides uh, local knowledge, does not respect and listen enough, uh, have upward accountability overriding local accountability, which is, just wouldn't make sense anywhere else. So, and And I think lately within the last, Five years I've been in, for example, in, in the position as an executive director of one of the Oxfam affiliates. And even within that context, I didn't feel I could change the system. I didn't feel that I could sufficiently say, we are going to do it completely different than what these organizations have done for years. So I decided at that point to, to step out and uh, I found a conducive space for peace with a very specific mandate to transform the global peacebuilding system with the purpose of shifting power to local actors and doing what it can to create a more enabling space for, for locally-led peacebuilding, which means changing the way international institutions work today. Thank you, Mia. I, I can hear in your voice as you speak there the real experience of someone that has, has done this work on the ground and has experienced what can be 
optimism of, of working with local peace builders and, and hope and can also be a good deal of frustration when we experience these parallel worlds between where decisions can be made outside of the local context and it's a very different culture and interests and things that need to be responded to than, than what local peace builders are working with. And that frustration for many of us is a source of energy to try and work towards systems change. Before we get into that conversation, just for our listeners to understand a bit better, when we talk about locally led peace building, why is that important? What does that really mean? Well, locally led peace building means something else than local peace builders participating in a program designed by someone coming from the outside. Often today, the now I, I guess I, I'm diving into how the system works again, but but oftentimes support to local peace building comes from international organizations and they hold certain priority areas, certain ways of working, certain ways of, of defining and developing programs, setting up indicators and so forth. And that means it's not uh, sometimes even local organization becomes implementers of international organizations. And that wouldn't make sense anywhere else. I mean, think about hospital systems in Denmark, where I'm located now and, and where conducive space for peace is partly based. Um, it wouldn't make sense to take away or think that you should override the leadership, the ownership. And I actually don't like ownership either, but the leadership, the the ones who are dealing with the problems, the ones who, who hold the, the solutions, the ones who are in this for the long term, who, who are dealing with this on an everyday basis, who hold the legitimacy, the relations, the networks that it takes to develop these very complex and multi-dimensional initiatives to pursue peace building. So it would never make sense to think that anyone else could be at the center of that. When I sometimes hear, now I, maybe I shouldn't mention anyone in particular, but it could be UN representatives or INGO representatives or donor representatives saying, yeah, we did this in this place. Uh, we led this uh, peace process. It just doesn't make any sense for an international organization to think they should or to actually take steps and work in a way where they are holding power in leading a process that's inherently uh, led and owned by, of course, those in that particular context. So locally led peace building is peace building. That's where peace building takes place. That's the only sensible way of promoting peace in this world. And at a time when we have uh, mounting or, or numbers showing us Conflict is uh, escalating in many, many places, and the COVID-19 crisis has, to a large extent, uh, fed into existing conflict dynamics. More refugees in the world, more displaced people than any time before. So at a time like this, it's also becoming much more apparent that we uh, need to look for better solutions for promoting sustainable peace. Uh, but it's not new. I mean, local peace builders have always been at the core or should always have been at the core of, of sustainable peace and any efforts to promote that. That's a good point. It sometimes seems that part of the challenge is that the global peace building system doesn't necessarily recognize what is being done already. It's not surprising that countries that are experiencing 
challenges related to violent conflict have a whole range of domestically driven responses that don't necessarily fit within a an understanding of the international aid architecture. They're not necessarily part of programs, but there is a lot that is there often to work with and support. And as you mentioned, it's not that there's no role for outsiders, but it's about how do you support and nurture that local role. It seems interesting at this point in time with so many things that are affected by the the global pandemic. And there is an inability to travel. There's an inability to have the same kind of programming that has relied upon a, a collaboration between international actors and local peace builders. And in many cases, that's been disrupted. And I just wonder if that's having an impact at all on this, you know, what you've mentioned as this moment in which there's a lot of interest in how do we better support local. Is part of that supported by just the difficulty of actually trying to control and manage things from the outside in at this time? Yeah, I, I think that's an important part of building momentum for change, that, that this momentum is building. It's clearly more recognized that local actors, local peace builders, local development and humanitarian actors are at the center of any sustainable efforts for change. So that, yes, it has been felt stronger by international organizations that this is the case because of what you say. On the other hand, I'm also a bit actually challenged by this fact because why does it take the inability of international to travel to see that local peace builders are at the center of peace building, sustainable peace building? To me, it doesn't make any sense. I, I think there are other factors also that are feeding into this. I think the, the Black Lives Matter movement is actually also quite important in this because if you go to the core of the problem and the dysfunctionalities of the system that is not creating the best possible space and that enables peace building in conflict-affected context, it's also about respectful collaboration, respectful relations, dignified ways of engaging And a dignified way of engaging would, of course, be to come in and ask the question, how can I help you? And it's not to come in and say, this is what I think you should be doing. That doesn't make any sense in that. So, of course, there are also elements of power inequalities that are embedded in these dysfunctionalities. And they're coming out more clearly with broader global discussions about power inequalities, also focusing around racism, but also focusing around other issues. I think structural racism is not something we will dive into now, but it's definitely also an, an element of a broader understanding of how the dysfunctionalities of the system and also the ways that they need to change in both structures and in practices and in attitudes and norms. Yeah, I think you're really hitting on some important points there. And power differentials or power imbalances, I feel personally, are are at the heart of this and in various different guises. And it relates to something that comes through in the report, which is that there has been progress rhetorically in global frameworks and policies and discourse around localization, around locally led peace building but it doesn't seem to match what is 
happening in practice with respect to the ways that organizations work or you know where the money is actually flowing and who gets to make decisions in relation to that. So I just wonder if you might be able to help us understand this this kind of dichotomy between this world of of global frameworks versus you know real world practice. Yeah, thank you for bringing in this point. It's it's actually quite remarkable what how extraordinary uh, the policy framework on peace building is, but also on development and humanitarian and what within this these sectors is of course often named as localization. I'm normally not using that term because it inherently means that you localize something that's not already local, which doesn't make any sense because how can anything not belong to the context it's embedded in? But it's remarkable ever since, uh, I mean, at least 10 years ago, there were mentioning of, of uh, the need for creating more flexibility, for reshaping systems and institutions so that they, they would be both more flexible enable more ownership and leadership. These are the terms used, but also more specific in the, for example, the grand bargain, where the agreement of 25% of the funds needing to go to national, local actors. That's just not the case. We've actually seen a decrease from around 3.4% to something, 2 point something percent in the last few years. So way below the 25% and also moving in the wrong direction. So if we were only looking at the funding part of it, it's definitely not meeting the purpose and the intention embedded in these policies. Uh, so there continuing to be a lot of focus on policies, but I don't think it can get any better than it is. I think it's about translating it into action. And that's a completely different business because it means shifting power. It means actually changing the ways institutions work in a quite transformative way that also relates to attitudes and shifting power, uh, but also, you know, technocratic uh, elements related to monitoring and evaluation and accountability. Who holds the, the agenda for learning and the accountability? Who are we accountable to? And that must be the ones who are in the conflict-affected country where peace building is taking place. So in that sense, momentum is developing. There's more and more discussion about the need to address and, and change institutions. There's more discussion about the need for local actors to have the space to lead those processes, but very little is done. And there's very little action in terms of saying, okay, what are ways to change the institutions? What are ways that we can actually more fundamentally change these institutions. There are incremental changes being seen. There are elements of innovation going on in, in institutions, and I would use the term systems innovation as opposed to system transformation. And with system innovation, I, I would relate to Rob Rizigliano's um, understanding of this concept and, and basically thinking that you innovate to make a system work for the purpose. So you try to innovate to address the existing dysfunctionalities and make it work. But these and, and systems transformation would of course be a much more radical change in how an organization works at all levels. 
And while we see a number of systems innovation in pockets, you know, in a country context, in one mechanism, by one INGO in one context, but not even one INGO in one context will be able to translate that experience to all their work in their broader organization. So we see very little at this point ability of the system to translate systems innovation into broader systems transformation, which means then you can almost say, well, is it, is it wasted? Because if 90% of the engagement and the support and collaboration between international organizations and local peace builders, if 90% of that works in a mainstream manner, which actually holds these dysfunctionalities of international knowledge overriding local knowledge, of what accountability overriding local accountability, and a lot of these dimensions that is not creating an enabling space for locally led peace building, then of course we need to think differently and not create smaller incremental change efforts or at least think about, okay, when we do that, how does it translate to broader systems transformation? Would it be okay that I give an example of where actually systems innovation can sometimes even be have the opposite effect? Please. Um, there are many very innovative and creative people also within the international institutions. And many like me are thinking, this is not working as well as it could. And they also like me, many, and I think like yourself, Steve, uh, feel somehow compromised of being part of a broader system that actually holds these power inequalities and dysfunctionalities. So they're very uh, inspired to innovate. If we take one INGO representative working at a country office saying, this is not working, continuously reporting and meeting the upward requirements, all these donor requirements for reporting against preset indicators that were never defined by the local peace builders, but they still have to report against it. That are not changeable during the, the period of a program. Uh, so let's call it a she. She comes up with an, a new way of setting up a local accountability mechanism. That may be very useful in that particular context. And it may be a, a way of also feeding back in and potentially making smaller adaptions to the program. But as soon as, as this meets, if they actually hold the power to say, no, this is not working, we need to do this, it's going to meet some kind of wall or process within that international organization with M&E people coming in, in to say, but no, you can't do that because we still need to report to these upward accountability, these indicators that were preset. And you, you may have, have others in the organization saying, no, it's not possible to accommodate such mechanism. And then if you've set up something where you actually pretend that they hold the power to decide the direction of a program, but it's actually not the case because of the broader way the organization works, it's actually making the dysfunctionalities even worse, according to, to my assessment. And so what is required is not thinking about how can we take a local accountability mechanism and you know, test different ways of doing that and then broaden that out, share that to other organizations and say, do that. No, it's about looking at the chain of influence within the organizations. Okay, so this needs to change at that level. But then she needs to ask, okay, if I want to do this and that's the best way to move forward, 
then you need to do this differently to other people within the organization. What does it take for you to be able to reshape your M&E framework to the director of the organization? What does it take for you to actually have a seek different funding mechanisms that allow for this kind of uh, support and collaboration? And so I think it requires to really understand the chain of influence, the way that each level of an organization, uh, different entities of, of organizations have an influence of either enabling or, if we put it very radically, disenabling locally-led peace building through these ways of working. So you're talking about chains of influence, and that's getting us into trying to figure out what are theories of change for a system's transformation. And I'd love for us to go more into that. I think it's it's useful if we just paint the scale of the challenge. You know, when we see this gap between rhetoric and practice with respect to locally led peace building, this is a topic that has been talked about for decades. Why has it not happened? Um, you know, it strikes me when you look through the report at the different factors that are constraining locally led peace building, you're talking about a focus on on risk and, and risk mitigation. You're talking about upwards accountability. Are you talking about seeing local organizations as partners to implement something on behalf of, of foreign governments or NGOs? Uh, you're talking about not valuing local knowledge, being risk avoidant, so not being willing to tolerate adaptation or learning real-time changes to programs, responsiveness to the context. All of these factors, all of these incentives are interests of a nation state, you know? So you have a, a mechanism that even if it's through multilateral organizations, it still responds to the incentives of, of a foreign government's bilateral donors. And you're asking these governments to change their behaviors on behalf of organizations and people that are not even citizens of their country, that don't have any rights within that nation state framework, don't have a, a voice to exercise their rights and their will. I think that's a fundamental challenge with how we're going to transform this. So I just wanted to sort of paint that there, not to be disparaging, but the scale of that transformation that's required is, is quite significant. Against that backdrop, how do we use chains of, of influence or how do we use other theories of change to see what might look different with respect to how aid is delivered by by states, is it just around our our monitoring and our mal systems, monitoring, evaluation, and learning systems? Is it through the behaviors of leaders, and is it a political question and conversations that we need to have in countries that are providing aid, so that citizens know that we need to do it in different ways? I mean, what are these these chains that you're talking about, and that kind of theory of change where we might want to get to? Yeah, often when I talk about uh, the need for these changes and also the, the problems of the system and the resistance to change, many will say, ah, yes, we recognize these challenges. We recognize this from having worked in these systems for years. We think that this is not conducive for uh, local actors and for the sustainability of any kind of effort that the uh, institutions are trying to promote. So that's a general recognition. And yet, I so often get the response, but we can't do anything about that. I think there's a really 
key challenge in not thinking that you can change the way institutions work. And I think that's part of the reason why we keep seeing all these great policies coming out and naming the challenges, naming what is needed, but not even trying to propose then what to do about it. We need to move beyond that and say, well, of course, we can do something about it. And of course, we just need to understand the complexity and grasp the complexity of change and take one step at a time. And the fact that there are many ways of pursuing change, many people with different ideas of pursuing change, this is actually creating a fantastic basis for, for a much broader transformative process. And um, when we look at some of those who are most resistant to change or where we could consider them most difficult to change, such as donors and donor constituencies. And for example, the, the issue around why they are holding on to upward accountability, why it's increasingly legitimate for a donor to state that we have these national interests from our side as a donor, and therefore that's what we support in the world. I think there's a failed understanding in doing that. There's a missed understanding that we have to pursue of getting donors to understand and donor constituencies to understand that if they don't try to promote that those who know best in a given context does what is needed to pursue sustainable peace, then we have no chance to be helpful or to hope to live in a world with less violent conflict than we have today. And the donors are also seeking broader global, at least stability, but hopefully also uh, seeking to contribute to a more peaceful world and at least seeking to be part of a more peaceful world. Even if donors, as Denmark would sometimes do, frame their interests around, no, I, I don't have to be politically sensitive, but sometimes even framing it around how do we avoid uh, having a lot of refugees in, in coming to Denmark? And that's increasingly legitimate to state as part of your interest for how you pursue and engage uh, in development and peace building. I think it's possible to, while completely frustrated and um, embarrassed by this being a legitimate way to argue and state your interest, I still think it's something to work with in that you can actually create an understanding. I think it's possible to create an understanding that if we are better able to support local actors in peace building and in development and in humanitarian efforts, then we are also much better able to contribute to a more peaceful world and therefore better able to address the, the concerns of donor countries that may state their concerns in, in to me, uh, sometimes compromising ways. Uh, so I think there's something to work with there. I, I have an example that I think is quite telling. I was uh, having a meeting with a bilateral donor representative or a diplomat in New York last year, I think, a couple of years back because of COVID-19, who was quite proud and happy to say that they were now supporting the UN Peacebuilding Fund in a different way, and also to promote that it was better able to support local actors in peace building, especially the, the grant specifically intended to support women and youth in, in peace building, but community-based organizations. 
and then explaining how that, of course, could only be done if you added these accountability mechanisms, so more rigid ways of assessing where this was actually meeting the needs. So there's also a failed understanding here that what you do on the one side is actually countering what you're trying to do on another side, not quite understanding how adding upward accountability mechanism takes away leadership of local organizations to set the direction, set the priorities of what they should be doing, to flexibly adapt to changing circumstances and innovate ways that that can lead to long-term sustainable peace. So I think there's some understandings of of these complexities of how the actions of some quite far from conflict-affected context is actually impacting the space for unfolding the potential of local peace builders in conflict-affected context. So that's also, these are examples of how to engage and at least further the understanding of how donor at the political and constituency levels, uh, how can we work with them, but also how can we work with bureaucrats, also those who are quite far from the context. And the example I gave before of an INGO representative fairly close to the conflict-affected country, maybe in a country office. On the other hand, that person needs to work with their whole system and understand that system and how they can change it in order to allow for a different type of collaboration and enabling space in the concrete engagement and support to locally led peace building. And as you can hear, I'm, I'm also, I mean, really, this is, yes, we talked a bit about funding, but it's really not about funding. It's about the quality of collaboration. It's about the way the system works to enable locally led peace building. And it's not, while I would like OSEDAC to start measuring how much funding actually goes to local actors and local peace builders, it's currently not showing that. It's not possible to show directly. I think that's, it's a measure of how it's not working as well as it could. But there are multiple measures in ways of working and in the quality of collaboration. And that's why I think we, we need to focus the most attention. And, and maybe to continue, I know I'm talking a lot. In all of this, because you were asking about the theory of change, and in all of this is, in fact, an understanding that we're holding in conducive space for peace, but also we're not holding any theory of change by ourselves, but our understanding of how to facilitate change and the way we're working is an understanding where we think that change agents in many different parts of the global peace building system, whether local peace builders, whether INGO representatives in different parts of the organizations, whether donor representatives, whether normal people outside of, of these institutions, how each can play a role in changing the systems. And it's about tapping into that potential. Sometimes, as you and me, we're holding a certain degree of frustration and about these power inequalities. And, and there's energy and drive and innovation in that and a willingness to seek changes in the way these institutions and the broader system works. So I think it's about supporting change agents in facilitating change and believing that change is possible. And also in creating linkages, so networks of change agents where they can, with the diversity of perspectives of how to facilitate change, where they can actually get more ideas, they can think about how 
innovation translate into broader transformation and be part of a community of people who think that change is needed today rather than tomorrow, but takes time, but also that it's actually doable. Systems and institutions consist of people. I mean, it's not an argument to say, but these are, are tankers. These are such big institutions that they can't change. Of course they can. They consist of people. People has to change them. Does there need to be any kind of ecosystem or way of collaborating outside of those institutions in order for that change to actually have a chance to function as a system? You've mentioned a number of constraints that either bilateral donors or multilateral donors impose that make it really hard to do locally-led peace building. And bureaucracy, I think, in a lot of people's experience, just doesn't work well with responding to needs that might not fit the policy language, might not fit with how the goals have been articulated, might not be in the timeframes that are needed, might not meet the compliance uh, expectations. So how do you take change agents or how do you get that working? Can you get it working outside of, of institutions or does it have to be inside? You know, your paper report also references direct funding initiatives. Is this a way where donors can give pull funds through other instruments that aren't going to be so impeded by some of this bureaucracy. Uh, I'm just trying to feel around how you might get this working within the existing system or outside some of the institutions. Yeah, I, I think that while change agents can both be inside international institutions or national institutions or local organizations, I think the network's across these different institutions, sharing of lessons learned, sharing of an understanding of what these challenges look like and ways of addressing them is really needed across these organizations. And people in different parts of the institutions have different potential for change. And sometimes you need to link across different country contexts, people being in sort of the same kind of position and exploring what can be done differently from that perspective. And sometimes you have to work more in the vertical space between these different levels of the chain of influence within organizations. I find that we're thinking a lot about, you know, what makes a change agent. And for example, an, an element like, are you willing to invest political capital in changing the system when, you know, there, there are no incentives for changing away from donor-driven priorities and upward accountability and international knowledge being sort of at the center. There are no incentives to that, uh, but actually there are still people who are willing to invest political capital to be rule breakers. Sometimes we call them intern co-conspirators, but in a way it's, you can also say it almost sounds like they're against the system, but I would actually argue that they're the saviors of the system, of these institutions, because if they don't change within a reasonable time frame and address the power inequalities and the dysfunctionalities, they're going to lay themselves down. And this is a bad Danish English translation of a Danish way of saying things. But basically, they're not going to be able to exist as they are today because they do not succeed in promoting sustainable peace and development in the best possible way, with the best use of resources, with the 
taking advantage of the potential of those who actually know best. So in that sense, you can disrupt the system. You know, if we get numbers of how little funding actually goes to local peace builders, local actors, we can yell that out to donor constituencies and populist right-wing nationalist political parties in donor countries who will, of course, say, well, then why do we support it? And I don't think that's the way forward. I think the way forward is working to change the institutions, but with a much greater incentive for transformation and a much greater drive also from the leadership, uh, seeing the need for transformation. And I think just within the last couple of years, I'm very positive about the momentum for change developing, still to see how much of that is going to be taken into actual change, action, how much willingness is there to be as transformative as to relinquish power, because that is part of it. These organizations are already vulnerable. International NGOs are at this point quite vulnerable also because geopolitics, the geopolitical shifts, the shift in funding patterns, there are multiple shifts globally at this time that requires the organizations to change, but also leaves them very vulnerable. And that can be fantastic position from which to embark on a, on a more transformative change process, but it's also a very difficult place to embark on a more transformative change process. So I think it also requires some of these leaders of organizations and with INGOs playing a, a very crucial intermediary role uh, some of these leaders coming together to say, we are going to do this differently. We are ready now to relinquish power and see more radical change. In that INGOs are important because they kind of translate the power of donors to national organizations and local organizations. And they, have, they know enough about what it means to create an enabling space for locally-led peace building. Many are feeling compromised and not being able to do it sufficiently well. And they also understand some of the international institutional ways of working and how they can change. But they have to want to change. They have to see that now is the time that they need to change pretty radically. But your question about internal and external, I think both that there has to be a lot of thinking and action for change in the current system and institution and ways of working. But at the same time, processes of reimagining completely new ways of working outside of the, the current system. And I think for that, local peace builders, local actors, local activists has to have a very key role in defining what should that space look like and saying out loud very clearly, this is the kind of space we need. This is what we need you to do to help us. And currently there are a number of, of you know, reimagining processes. Um, we are part of facilitating one reimagining process on the global peacebuilding system and, and locally led peacebuilding that's led by the drivers and co-creators in that process are the local peacebuilders. And it will be very interesting to see what comes out of this process and what comes out of other processes. And while I don't think that's going to create, okay, so we create something completely new, something different, for example, from the UN system, I still think it's going to be very important of cross-fertilization between these 
radically reimagined ways of working and and systems of collaborating globally and and trying to change the existing ways of working and the existing institutions. I think that's how change will happen across fertilization between these tracks, hopefully over the next 10 years and not beyond that. That's the time frame I'm working with. 10 years sounds like enough time to make a good few first steps at least. A lot of what we've talked about so far, Mia, has been about what we need to do out there to change the global peace building system and imagine how institutions are going to work differently. But I wonder if there's anything that we might do differently within our organizations and our ways of working to start to value the work of locals better and to address some of those power imbalances that we've talked about. I actually think the core of our ability to change lies in our ability to change where we are and our own practices our, and deal with our own attitudes. And, and for example, if we are in an organization that has inequalities in salary levels, in, in retreat, you know, whether some can go out of a conflict-affected context, like a conversation I had the other day with my colleague in Pasca in South Sudan saying, why are the internationals able to leave every five weeks or so? Because they have to take care of their psychosocial needs because it's so tough to be in a conflict-affected context. But nobody came up with the idea to also extend that to local peace builders and to those that these organizations are collaborating with. So local peace builders, every day going in the communities, dealing with the trauma and trauma healing processes, not five days a week, but seven days a week, not being able to leave for a week every five weeks. How do we recognize these power inequalities and actually do something about them? Where we are, where we stand, where we live, where we work, and in our own systems. And it's an ongoing process in conducive space for peace. We we discuss these all the time, so it's not possible here just to develop a, a staff policy or a compensation policy or a whatever policy, because it's all about how do we make sure that we address our values and align this with our values and particularly address it in line with the recognition of power inequalities. And it's not easily done. It's something you have to do every day. It's not something you do once a year. It's not that we have the key to doing that, but definitely understand that a key to moving and changing the system to address the power inequalities and enable the space for locally led peacefulness starts with ourselves. Such a critical point. <clears throat> it reminds me of um, something we unofficially signed on to recently, which is to stop not paying interns because the only people that can afford to have internships are people from a relatively privileged background because they work for nothing, right, normally. So if you pay your interns, you actually open up that learning opportunity to a wider section of people, not just those that are privileged. And I think if if we're all honest with ourselves, we'd realize that a lot of the things that we do when we're working in foreign contexts are not equal in terms of how we treat people. I just wonder, you know, whether through this decolonization of aid conversation that's happening or via other means, where there might be opportunities for NGOs maybe to look at and sign up to some principles about what they're going to adhere to and and ways of working. Um, There might be something that we can hold up as a standard for ourselves. So we're actually walking the talk of the values that we're 
asking others to live up to. Any further comments on that topic? I think your last point is really critical. And just a brief note on that. I think principles is an excellent idea and moving that forward. Again, we know that principles are plenty and action is limited. Uh, So again, we need to at least to look out for how it can be put into practice and that these organizations then hold each other accountable to those principles. But I think that that we have to recognize that the recognition of the aspects that are embedded in the decolonizing aid discussion is even more difficult for these organizations, the international organizations that are aimed at addressing power inequalities. That they actually haven't, that's their overall goal to address some of these issues that they haven't yet addressed in their own organizations. That doesn't make it easier for them to discuss these points. It probably makes it harder. I think it's critically important, but recognizing that this is uh, where we also, if I tell you, you're not adhering to these principles, you are using your power, Uh, you're part of a structure of racism, you are a racist, it's probably hitting even harder to somebody who really believe themselves to adhere to these principles and spend every day working for that. That's not to say we shouldn't do it. It's to say we should do it, but we have to take this into consideration. It's certainly a complex picture that you paint when we talk about the different roles of bilateral governments, multilaterals, the NGOs as intermediaries potentially, and then the local peace builders and how that all translates and works together. It seems to me like a good starting point is a mindset, like a shared mindset about why and why the local leadership is so important for peace building to be sustainable, for it to work well, and to actively be orientated around making that happen. And what I've seen with NGOs is that mindset is not universal. There's a lot of NGO leaders that kind of replicate what donors have and that they are driven by concerns quite understandably around losing their funding, about responding to signals that are coming from capitals and about seeking local organizations as partners that can implement a plan that they've already developed, which meets the interests of their donors. And then you have different types of leadership mindset that are prepared to push back against donors and say, well, this is what we're hearing from local peace builders, and these are the constituents that matter. Therefore, uh, this is how the work should be done. So it seems like it's a a bit of a mixed bag. Um, Also, reflecting on what you're saying about where governments are at, you know, I feel like they're facing a much grander reckoning around the failure or limitations of command and control centralized leadership approaches because things are just too fast now. Things are too local to global, interconnected, granular, and the systems that have evolved over over decades and centuries are too slow to respond to these needs. So there needs to be a decentralization in how administration happens writ large. And you know, development and peace building is just one of the sectors that is going to have to face that. So I wonder, as some of these pressures around pandemics and migration and every other climate change and every other complex challenge start to bite, that we get sort of deeper reforms on how public administration is actually happening, in which 
there's more transparency to say to the public, here's how we would like to do aid. Here are the contenders to do the work locally. Here are the kind of risks that are going to be faced and you know what providers can respond to that. How can we manage the risks and not try to do it in this kind of you know log frame, very slow and risk averse kind of way. Uh, so I feel like that needs to happen. And I just wonder if there's, you know, ways to get some donors moving in that direction. And like you say, working with the change agents, like the people and NGOs that get it and linking that those up with the local peace builders that have always got it and are doing it. It seems like, I don't know if this is what you're getting at with system transformation, but like trying to demonstrate that system actually functioning as an alternative you know, this this kind of idea of a, of a latent attractor, that if you can get the latent attractor kind of working with a set of actors and show, look, this is delivering better results and it's transparent and risks are being managed and it's more timely and things aren't blowing up, then maybe that can pull in other donors to start, you know, working in that way. So I don't know, that starts to get a little bit speculative, but it just seems like we almost need to see this maybe before people can start believing in it in a systemic way. Yeah, no, I, I think these are excellent points. There are some donors that are moving in this direction. So that's a good part of it. It's generally some of the smaller donor countries. I think what is important is that when there's so one potential risk of doing something outside, when, when we've seen things emerging outside, also sometimes from private foundations saying, we want to do it differently, we want to set it up differently, we have the potential to set it up differently than the bilateral donors. Then eventually it actually evolves into the same kind of modality of accountability structures and so forth and risk management. Many times that's the case. So I think you're your understanding of how it relates to the broader leadership globally and how you know technocracy is working and, and how we hold the human potential and human collaboration at the center or not. So I think there's something that goes back to how each of us, each of the leaders of the INGOs, each of the persons at any level within bilateral donor agencies and private foundations in national organizations also, how do we hold our values at the core and how do we engage in a way that is respectful? That would also mean that anyone who then, as I was myself, a leader of an NGO or a bigger one than the one I'm, I'm leading now, found myself that I actually couldn't change the ways of working as significantly as I felt they needed to be changed from where I was standing. So that each of us consider, can we change things when we recognize dysfunctionalities, when we recognize power inequalities, when we recognize that we are not engaging as a human beings in reciprocity and mutual relation in listening to one another and understanding one another and, and if we recognize that that's not the case, we need to take steps to change it. And I think that's the last step that's not happening at this point. That is, people working within these institutions have gradually gotten used to an increasing technocratization, bureaucratization, almost taking the human out of the equation and sort of hiding behind all these layers of procedures and ways of working that doesn't uh, 
hold the human engagement at the center. So I think that's the, and I think a lot of people are frustrated about that. That's not what they came to this work for. That's not the alignment with their key values. And I think that's also where the potential for change lies. But it does require us to look at ourselves and maybe more so doing that than inventing these big new alternative structures outside of existing systems. And then finding that, oh, by the way, they also have to adapt to some of these requirements that are here. And I mean, this is not, hopefully you can understand, I'm not arguing for a completely sort of meditative, let's all sit in a circle and and figure out, you know, how we hold on. I think we do have to all sit in a circle and figure out how we hold our values. That's one element of the work. Then we have to think together about then what do we do about it? How do we change things? So it aligns with these values and make some serious strategic choices, consider the resilience for change, consider the vulnerabilities that has to be dealt with, even the geopolitical politics of this equation. So, so I don't think it's a sort of sitting back meditating, but it's really holding the human being, the human potential, and that essence at the core of everything we do and kind of refining that at the core of our work. That's such a critical point. I'm really glad that you brought that up. You know, to bring it back around, it strikes me as a similar kind of self-reflection related to the idea of privilege, which has come to the fore, you know, in the Black Lives Matter movement in particular in the last year. And it's the idea of understanding how you interface with the world as a person, but what privilege is linked to your identity or your positionality and some kind of invisible, imagined, socially created hierarchy. And as peace builders, particularly if we are international peace builders, individuals or organizations, within a context, we assume a social political positionality, which is not the same as local organizations. And it's invisible, yet it governs almost everything. And you know, whether it's sitting in a, a circle and talking about it or just reflecting on it ourselves, we do need to and bring that what's internalized to the conscious mind and in our conversation say, how is this actually promoting inequalities, um, power imbalances? How is this actually undermining the agency of local people, which is the critical component to trying to build a peace that will last to repair a society and rebuild social relations? So I think that's quite right is bringing that to the forefront um, there is one simple tool that I discovered in preparing for this, which I think is by a Dutch consortium. Is it Parthos? A consortium of Dutch NGOs that produce the power awareness tool. We can link to it. It's a set of simple questions to ask yourself, maybe together with your local partners to figure out, you know, where are the imbalances here that we're not talking about, but are influencing, you know, the degree to which locals can actually lead. It's been fantastic speaking with you, Mia. I'll open the floor if you want to make any final comments uh, with respect to calls to action or anything else, future directions where you think we should be going. But I've really enjoyed having this chat. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Stephen. I don't think I have that much to add. I think exactly the change can happen and systems change is a combination of looking at this human essence and the values, but also the technocratic challenges, uh, looking at the broader political strategic challenges, addressing them, finding ways 
mobilizing the creativity and the strategic thinking and mobilizing our power across and between change agents to facilitate these changes. Um, carrying the frustration on actually a quite positive note and drawing energy out of, of the frustration with the way the system currently works, but really seeing that change is on its way. And we need to mobilize even greater movements to facilitate in this direction. Thank you very much, Mia. Great talking with you. Thank you. We will leave links in the show notes for the report if you'd like to read it. Also to follow Mia Kachusev Spaces for Peace on your social media platforms. This has been Stephen Gray with the Adapt Peacebuilding Podcast. Thank you for listening. Visit us at adaptpeacebuilding.org slash blog.